Bibles with me back to Matthew chapter 12. Just a few chapters ahead of where we were. begin with prayer. Father, strengthen us to hear. Strengthen your messenger to speak. We need your help today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Proverbs verse, chapter 27, verse 19 says, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. Proverbs 23 Verse 7, the beginning of the verse says, For as a man, or as he thinks within himself, so he is. James chapter 3 says, Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brother, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? The answer is no, of course not. Spring can produce only from its own source, and either it's good or it's bad. A tree can put out fruit only according to its nature. Proverbs 27, 19. As in face, as in water, face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. In our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 12, starting at verse 33. Jesus really is proving a point to the Pharisees to whom he's speaking, a point about themselves. And in the end, in verse 37, he turns to his audience, not just to the Pharisees as a group, but to you as an individual. He uses the singular you, not y'all, but you. He addresses each of us, looks us in the eyes, and says the same thing to us, too. And he's warning. What he's doing is warning, I believe, the Pharisees and his hearers about this truth. that the heart of man reflects man at the, and that the mouth of man reflects his heart. What these Pharisees have said, what they are saying, reveals a great deal about them. And the people who are listening to what they're saying need to be warned about what they're saying. The truth that Jesus is proving in these verses, these five verses, I believe, is that since it's true that what you say is consistent with who you are, the only fix for a filthy mouth is a new heart. Think about it. If what you say is an accurate reflection of who you really are at your core, then to be really changed in what you say, you can't just change your mouth. You have to have a heart change. If your mouth is a problem, it's really a problem of your heart. And we know some of the verses in this section. If you look at verse 34, this is a famous saying, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It's like a reservoir 
that once it gets the kind of rain we got this weekend and it fills up, what comes out of that reservoir? It's just the leftovers. It just pours out. Out of the abundance of the heart, a man speaks, you've heard. You've heard, perhaps, verse 37, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. These are very famous sayings about our words, our own mouths. But it's helpful and important, I believe, to see that these verses come as part of an extended answer that Jesus gives to the Pharisees. After they seek to discredit him upon a remarkable miracle of casting out a demon so a, a blind and mute man could see and speak. And you'll see as we read, we'll read chapter 12 up through verse 37 in a moment. You'll see as we read, as the crowds observe this really unmistakable miracle, they're asking the right question. They're asking, this man can't be the son of David, can he? There's some doubt, but it is the right question. It's is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? The Messiah won't do less than this, will he? Of course, that is exactly the right conclusion for them to draw, but they're, they're a bit on the fence. But as the Pharisees observe the reaction of the crowds, they're jealous of Jesus' influence and his, his popularity, and the rest of the gospel writers really draw attention to this jealousy. They just didn't like it. They were jealous of Jesus. And so, in an effort to publicly undermine his credibility, they start blaspheming him. And not just blaspheming him, but blaspheming the spirit who empowers him, as Jesus draws attention to. They say, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons, which is, of course, false. And the Pharisees really should know this. But it is what they said, whatever reason they had for saying it, it is what they said. This is what was in their hearts. And it's really all, as we'll see, in an effort to, to maintain control over the people and to defame Jesus. So Jesus takes up a, a bit of a defense here. We'll kind of tackle this by way of an extended introduction. But he kind of takes up a defense here to teach the crowds and to show the foolishness of what they're charging him with. And it culminates in his address in our text for this morning. So let's read Matthew chapter 12, starting at the beginning of the chapter, to get our bearings here in the context. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would, have, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Departing from there, he went into their synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? 
How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is, not, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I, my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And any city or house divided against it itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a str the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And then our text for this morning. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And then there's a longer exchange where the people are asking, the leaders are asking for a, a sign. And Jesus says there will be only one sign that is given. But this is the word of the Lord. And it is a sober lesson to us about our tongues. Definitely to the religious leaders. But then in the end, Jesus turns to each individual and says it to them. You will give an account 
just if you'll bear with me, I want us to catch and really lay our minds, set our minds on what exactly Jesus is saying. Because you see how verse 33 is really just part of the same conversation, part of the same uh, address that Jesus is giving. And first, he's responding to this charge that he has cast out this demon and healed this man by the power of the devil, is what these Pharisees have said. And Jesus first, knowing their thoughts, verse 25, implies that this charge is foolish because a divided kingdom won't stand. This is never how life works, Jesus says. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. This is certainly not how the devil will succeed. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? But next, it's not just foolish. Jesus shows the charge to be inconsistent because evidently the Pharisees were favorable towards other folks who supposedly cast out demons. If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, if that is the only explanation for this power, then these other people who are doing the same thing, what's the explanation for them? You're not accusing them of the same thing. They're being inconsistent. This really is a self-defeating accusation that they're making. But then Jesus goes on and kind of develops it a bit further, and he shows the charge to be contrary to the evidence. But if, as is the case, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom has come upon you. And here's the evidence. How can anyone enter the strong man's house and plunder him? if he doesn't deal with the man first. The only alternative to casting out demons by the power of the devil is that he's doing this by the Spirit of God. And that is, of course, the truth. If you look in verse 29 first, the image here is kind of of this, this warlord or this kingpin of some kind, guarding his outpost, guarding his treasure, making sure no one comes in and steals it back from him. You know, you've maybe heard this phrase, man, this place is crawling with security. It's crawling with armed guards. The only way to get in and take it out at will is if you deal with the armed guards. Then you can go in and take whatever you want. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's the essence of what he's saying. I am coming in and I am plundering the devil because I have dealt with the devil. These people that are under the devil's bondage that I'm freeing from demons, it's because I have because I'm more powerful than the devil, I have bound him in some sense. It's, he's not really drawing all of that out, but you see the implication of what he's saying. We're not really even told what exactly Jesus is talking about, how he has bound the devil or anything like that, but he's plundering the devil as he's freeing these people enslaved to various demons. And if, as Jesus says, this is by the power of the spirit against the devil, which is true, then that also means something else. That means that Satan's kingdom is vulnerable because God's kingdom is here. And you're on the wrong side of it, he's telling them. It's not just in the future, it's here now. And that means something else. Jesus is a king, and he's greater than Satan. And his kingdom, someone has said, is forcefully advancing with great liberating effect on people. There are people being set free. And that's really why this is such a nasty charge, because this is such a good thing that Jesus has done. 
So not only is this charge foolish and inconsistent and baseless, it's also perilous. And if you come to verse 30, you may have a heading in your Bible. If, if it's the same as in mine, the heading of the unpardonable sin. And this isn't a sermon about these verses. I initially setting out to preach on this text. I didn't even think I would be getting into this, but it is important to understand the context here. And it's helpful to, to notice what these religious leaders are doing that Jesus identifies as a sin that will not be forgiven. What does he call, why, why does he call blaspheming against the spirit a sin that will not be forgiven? Because this raises a lot of questions for us. And just bear with me, we'll move quickly through this. First, what they're doing is in the context of people who are who are questioning, they're nearing belief. Is this the son of David? This isn't the son of David, is it? And these leaders aren't just doing this in their heart. They're doing it vocally. They're doing it publicly. They're leveraging their influence to discredit Jesus, to keep people from believing in him, and to justify their own rejection of him. We will not believe in him, although everything, all of this evidence points to him. So we're going to justify a rejection of him by saying the devil is empowering. It's really a malicious reinterpretation of the evidence. And then Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. There's no neutrality with Jesus. They're pretending to be even-handed in how they're interpreting the evidence, but they're actually not neutral. They're opposed to Jesus. They're accusing Jesus, who is empowered by the spirit of being empowered by the devil. You see that? They're blaspheming. They're speaking against the spirit who empowers Jesus. The things that Jesus is doing that are so obviously from, you could say, a clean power, having such good results among people, these men are publicly slandering as being accomplished by the devil. There's even a sense in which they're saying that Jesus and the devil are in cahoots to pass off what he's doing as being empowered by the spirit. You and the devil are, are in league together. This is really a nasty charge, and it's perilous. It's dark. And what is the unpardonable sin? Well, that, that's really the last thing to note about it. It has, someone said, eternally irreversible consequences. It's unforgivable. I believe Jesus is saying this to them, warning them about this. I think they're on the verge of doing this. I believe it's unforgivable probably because it's a sin that once you sin in this way against the evidence with so much knowledge, you never repent of this. Someone has said, if someone is worried about whether or not they have committed the unpardonable sin, they haven't. Because people who are committing this sin are those who don't worry about such things. They're sinning against the evidence with a high hand in a way that they will never turn from. But Jesus, back to the working through the context, Jesus is drawing attention to how perilous this is, what they're saying. And why is it so perilous? Finally, coming to our text, because this charge, these words, they're unbelief. They're not just foolish. They're not just 
contrary to evidence. They're not just self-contradictory. They're not just perilous. It really is unbelieving. And now we come to the text and we see the point Jesus has been making all along. What you say is consistent with who you are. And since that's true, the only fix for a filthy mouth is a new heart. And Jesus states this in four ways. First, verse 33, words identify hearts. Words identify hearts. This is why it's insincere and really deceptive to paint good fruit on dead trees, because words identify hearts. When you want to know what kind of tree you have in your yard, you might look at the bark if you're really good, right? You might figure it out that way. But what's a really easy way to tell what kind of tree you have? Well, you look at what the tree produces, right? You identify the tree by its leaves or by its fruit. So here's a quiz. What's the tree that sends down all the little helicopters? What is that? It's a maple tree, right? Which tree drops acorns? It's an oak tree. This is how you identify it. There's lots of nut trees, too, that drop nuts all over your yards. Buckeye trees. Black walnut trees, horse chestnut trees, hickory trees. What kind of tree puts out apples? Oh, look, I have a cherry tree in my yard. No, you don't, you don't do that. Because your words identify your heart, Jesus says, don't manipulate the fruit. I believe that's what he's saying first. Either, here he gives a command, Make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You can understand by Jesus' words that he's assuming here what he knows to be true about their hearts, that they have wicked hearts. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. You could say the way I understand this is that he's telling them to to be consistent. Don't take a rotten piece of fruit or a piece of fruit from another tree and paint it like it belongs on this tree. Don't fake having a good heart, he says. He knows the truth, and he's telling them to stop hiding it. The Pharisees are slandering Jesus and the Spirit here under the guise of keeping people from being led astray. You know, we're the shepherds of Israel. We're the leaders of Israel. So we're just protecting people. Don't listen to this devil-empowered magician here, they might say. We have noble intentions for what we're doing, for saying good and wholesome religious words. You can imagine them justifying it this way. But Jesus is telling them, stop playing games. It's deceptive to take a rotten fruit and paint it like it's not rotten. Because your words identify your heart. Don't manipulate fruit, but also fix the root problem. Jesus is giving a command. Either make the tree good, this is an order, and the fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and it's fruit bad. How can Jesus tell them to fix their own hearts? Well, this really does have roots in the law, doesn't it? If you turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, This is exactly what God said through Moses to the people of Israel. And it's repeated several times over the course of the Old Testament, including in Jeremiah. When God tells the people to circumcise their own hearts, the sign of circumcision was the the physical sign of the covenant, but it 
ought to have reflected a spiritual reality. We see this language in the New Testament as reference for a new heart. But Deuteronomy 10 and verse 16, God is speaking through Moses. Look in verse 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, even you above all the peoples as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. And this is repeated. The prophets repeat this command. Circumcise your own hearts. You need a change of heart. And the people who are inclined to believe or who are believing would say, I can't change my own heart. Lord, deliver me. But Jesus is saying here back in Matthew chapter 12, make the tree good. Make the, the, the trunk and the roots good. That's how you're going to get good fruit. Not by taking the stuff on the ground and painting it. Because your words identify your heart, fix the root problem. He's, he's describing the real way to fix the problem. You've ever been to the West Side Market to the produce section where you walk in? Uh, kind of strikes me when I walk through there that it's kind of a reflection on the, the worst parts of marketing and advertising in our country. You know? All the good stuff is on top on display. And if you love the West Side Market, I do too. I'm not trying to slander anyone, but and then you want to go buy a bag of oranges or a crate of oranges. You see this nice display of good-looking oranges. And it's like, okay, here's whatever you're paying. And then they reach down behind the counter and they pull out this one. And it's like, ew, I don't want all those. I want that one that I saw, the one that looks good. You never really know what you're going to get. Sometimes you get a bag of spotted ones or spoiling ones or overripe fruit. Wasn't as advertised. You don't want that. Maybe they don't have any good fruit that they can give you. Maybe their problem is they need a new supplier or they need more people to buy fruit before it goes bad, but they need to fix the problem in a different way other than by passing off bad fruit as good fruit. And I know the analogy breaks down, but if there's a problem with the fruit that you have or how long that you have it, you, you can't just paint it over like it's not a problem. You need to fix the real issue. You need to go to the supply chain. So when Jesus says your words identify what kind of heart you have. Rather than putting on a front, change the real heart problem. When he says this, he's saying, don't be a hypocrite. And notice he's not just saying be consistent, at least be consistent. It would be better to be consistent than to lie. He's not exactly saying that. What he's saying is change your heart. Be right with God. This is a warning to these religious leaders that they need a heart change because what they're saying to discredit Jesus is sinful and it reflects a sinful and unbelieving heart. That's the kind of tree that they are. They need a new root system. So what do your words identify about your heart? Do your words identify you as an unbeliever? And I would ask you this question based on what the, the Pharisees are saying. What have you done with Jesus? What have you said about Jesus? Oh, I believe he's a good teacher. That reflects something about your heart. 
He's not really, he's not really Lord. What do you say about him? What do you think about him? What does that say about the roots of the tree that is you? What you say is consistent with who you are. It identifies the kind of tree your words do. What kind of tree your heart is. And so, if you have rotten fruit coming out of your mouth, it's because your heart is rotten. You need a new heart. But Jesus states the same point in a slightly different way. It's similar, but a bit different. Second, he says not only that words identify hearts, but also mouths vent hearts. So he's not really addressing so much the the deception or the insincerity, but the impossibility of growing fruit, living fruit from dead trees, because your mouth does vent your heart. It's impossible to grow good, good fruit from dead trees. Jesus has already concluded something about them, and he calls them on it in verse 34. You brood of vipers, you offspring of snakes. How can you, how are you even able to, being evil, speak what is good? He calls them offspring of snakes, and then he calls them evil. You are evil. They're men, someone said, filled with deadly hypocrisy, base treachery, and fatal self-deceit. Moral offspring of like progenitors whose ancestor is the old serpent himself. They're just like the devil at their core. He identifies them with the devil whose offspring they are. And he knows what's in their hearts and he reveals it. How are you able? How could it even be possible, you could say, for you to bring good things out of your evil heart? It's not. He's really just saying out loud what he knows because he knows everything. They have evil hearts. And if you should make the the fruit good by making the roots good, but you have bad and evil roots, how is it even possible for you to produce good fruit? You can't. You can't produce good fruit from your mouths, Jesus says to them, because you don't have good roots. You have evil roots. So what you're saying is evil. This doesn't mean that these men are as evil as they could be because they're not. They've been steeped in the law. They've studied the law their whole lives. They've been restrained by the laws of God. There there are many things in their lives that are really a credit to the grace of God through the law to keep them from being as bad as they could. But part of the problem is that it seems good on the outside but there's tons of rot on the inside that they won't turn from. Your mouth vents your heart. It's impossible to bring forth good spiritual things from a dead heart. In our house growing up, we had we didn't really have a good central heating system. I tell people that we didn't have a furnace. I think maybe we did, but it never worked or something. I don't really even know, but it was it was cold in our house a lot, okay? And if there was heat downstairs, there definitely wasn't heat upstairs, but we had electric blankets. So before you took a shower, you laid out all your clothes under the electric blanket. So when you got out of the shower, everything was warm. It was just, you survived. Okay. And we did it. And I, I, it made me a better person, but we had these vents in the floor in all the bedrooms. 
It was this big hole in the floor. If you took out the vent, it was just a big rectangle in the floor. And what came up through those vents? Heat rises, doesn't it? Was it heat from somebody else's house? Was it cool air? No. It was what was downstairs that came up. Sometimes you were pushing a person through the vent in our mischievous days. But really, what was downstairs vented into the upstairs. That vent, really, it was just impossible for anything different to come up but what was below. But maybe you'd say, what about all the people who appear to be Christians but aren't? How do they produce so many good things on the outside? Every illustration breaks down, but I would submit to you one of two things. Either they themselves are painting it on there and it's only the appearance that they are trying to deceive you with, or if you think about the parable of the soils, aren't there soils out of which seed really does spring up and there's signs of life? But eventually, over time, there's not fruit. Either there's no root system and things scorch out and they die, or the cares of the world and the temptations of the world choke them out and they die this way. But there are some who respond and there's fruit, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100, and praise God for them. We should distinguish between reality and our ability to perceive reality. We can't see people's hearts like Jesus does. It really is possible to deceive people. The Pharisees sure did. We read this morning, those 12 that Jesus sent out to do his bidding, who was the last one listed? Judas Iscariot did. He didn't deceive Jesus, but he sure deceived the other 11. Thousands, probably millions, have deceived Christians in the church for centuries. But that's only because we can't read hearts, but Jesus can. And what he's addressing here are words of hypocrisy and words of unbelief that are simply a vent for a simple heart. Words identify hearts, mouths vent hearts. Just as Jesus has said it now a few different ways, what you say is consistent with who you are. You can't escape it. So if what's coming out of your mouth is showing a corrupt and unbelieving heart, you need a new heart. Cry out to the Lord to save you. He will make you clean. He will give you a new heart. But next, Jesus says something still slightly different. In a third way, to state his point and to prove his point, heart identifies man. So your words identify your heart, but your heart identifies you. This is why it's inevitable to reveal in the, the illustration Jesus changes to, to reveal possessions that are consistent with the accounts you have of them because your heart identifies you. Verse 35, the good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. This, again, giving a different illustration here. And the emphasis is more back towards consistency and on the type of person who does this. Note the consistency between what the person possesses and what he brings out to show you. 
The good man brings out his good treasure. That's what he has in store. What does he bring out? Good things. The evil man brings out of, what does he have in store? Evil treasure. Evil things. Someone said this, each man stores up what he thinks is valuable in thoughts, judgments, convictions, and the like. As occasion rises, he draws on these treasures of his. They are exactly like the man who has stored them away. Someone else said, each man has only his own fund on which to draw. If for some reason you were asked to show someone exactly how much money you had, are you going to go to your neighbor's bank account to show them? No, you can only show them what you have. And when you bring it out and show them that, it's consistent with what was stored. You have some heirloom and someone wants to see it and you go down into your basement and you take it out and it's that's the thing that you have. But it's not just the consistency between what's stored and what you're showing people. Notice how that identifies the person who owns it. It is the good man who does this, who brings good treasure. And it's the evil man who brings forth evil things. You could say a believer brings out good things. An unbeliever brings out evil things. It's because believers store good things and unbelievers don't. They can't. Jesus isn't really even here addressing the reality that believers can struggle with sin. Believers, do we ever sin with our tongue? Of course we do. Jesus isn't addressing that. Can we even do that sometimes repeatedly? Can, can, can you say, can we say filthy things? Can we say hurtful things, wicked things? Do we sometimes return to that? To our shame, yes. At least we would say that's a sign of ill health if we're doing that. But can a Christian do so unrepentantly, such that that's the only thing that he can produce? No. We could use the analogies and the illustrations Jesus is using. If you have a dead heart, what you need is not a better artist to cover up the truth or more fertilizer to try to counteract reality, to bring something dead to life that really is dead. You don't need a, a craftier accountant to try to alter the truth of what you really have in your account. You need a new heart. That's the only answer to a corrupt mouth, Jesus says. But finally, he states it in a fourth way, similar some overlap. Words expose nature. This is why it's inescapable for each one of us to answer for every word, because your words expose, if not to other people who are frail, certainly to God, it exposes your nature. The warning is that there's ultimate accountability for every word. Jesus kind of makes sure that he's setting this off. But I tell you, this is a new idea, not just evil words, but every word. I tell you that every careless word. Whoa, we've been talking about unbelieving, corrupting, slanderous words. Where is this coming from? He's heightening the stakes. He's changing the standard. I tell you that every 
careless word. This is useless or idle word. This is a standard of perfection, isn't it? James chapter 3, verse 2 says, We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. This is a standard of perfection. Every idle word I'm going to answer for? Does the Bible really hold out this standard? Yes, it does. If you're a Christian, you, you hear this and you know that you can't do this. If you would turn with me to Proverbs chapter 12. Notice how much value is placed on restraining speech. Can anyone meet this standard? No, not perfectly. But this really is what the Bible calls us to. Proverbs 12, verse 23. A prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims folly. Proverbs 13, 16. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. Is it always unbelief? Is it always wickedness? Sometimes it's just uselessness. Proverbs 15, verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. Look at Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The Bible everywhere testifies that what you are is coming out of your mouth. But the Bible really does hold us to the standard of perfection. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. Christian, you know you can't do this. I know I can't do this. What do we do? If I'm going to give account for every idle word, we need to cry out for help, number one. But then we need to trust that if we sin, God will forgive us if we turn from our sin. But if you're not a Christian, like these Pharisees here, and if you're still in your sin, you should realize you can't do this either. But there is still accountability coming. You will give account, as Jesus says. What do you do? You need to cry for mercy because those words will stand against you. There's a warning about ultimate accountability, but the reality is that God will judge based on words and deeds. This is where Jesus turns his attention to the individual, not just to the group. Verse 37, for by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. This is a message directly to you and to me. And it's another warning. It's as though Jesus is turning and looking us dead in the eye, saying it to you. And here he's not saying if you say the right things, you can be justified, you can be saved, but that your words are an accurate reflection of who you are and therefore a valid basis of judgment against you. And how do we know that God will judge based on this kind of evidence? 
really is presented in the Old Testament, repeated in the New at the end of time. Psalm 62, verse 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God and loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work. There's loving kindness in that, that God rewards men and women according to their good deeds once they have trusted in Christ. But in the end, you realize Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, that the books will be opened And these are books of evidence that God has seen everything that has gone on in the world. The devil and death are thrown into the lake of fire. This is at the culmination of all things. Then John saw a great white throne. This is the throne of judgment for unbelievers. There will be no Christian here. But John saw this great white throne, this terrible throne of judgment. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence Earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and scrolls were opened. Books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And if we all had to answer for our deeds before the holy God of heaven, We would be sent straight after the devil into that lake of fire, wouldn't we? Because even one sin against this king, the mighty king of heaven, the creator God, the ruler of the universe is enough to damn us for eternity because he is an eternal God. But if you are in Christ, your sins have been judged in Christ and there is no wrath left for you. That's why, Christian, if you are in Christ as a Christian, you will not be there. But if you're here today and you are not a Christian, this verse is for you. This is a prediction of your future. And you can deny it if you want, but it is coming. You will be judged according to your deeds. Have you heard the truth and rejected it? That's a deed that will stand against you as evidence in the day of judgment. Has someone called you to repent and turn from your sin and believe in Christ? And you said, not today. And you died in your sin. That is a deed that will stand against you in the judgment. Have you sinned with your mouth? Of course you have. We all have. One commentator said, by what we say from day to day, including every idle utterance, as well as every sentiment, we are writing our own verdict for deliverance to us on judgment day. For our mouths reveal what our hearts are and contain They do it even in the case of hypocrites and liars. Let not the Pharisees say that Beelzebul only slipped out of their mouth and was not intended seriously. Even as an idle word, it betrays the speakers. But this isn't just for the Pharisees. This is for all of us. Who can stand before this kind of judgment? Every idle word? If we must be perfect to be with God, and we must, and even one false word will bar us from heaven, and it will, what should we do? What can any person do? If you could calculate how many useless, foolish, empty words you've spoken in your life, let alone how many corrupting words, wicked words, unbelieving, angry, abusive, 
gossiping, complaining, harsh, profane, immoral words that you've uttered, the weight of that would crush you. God will judge you based on those things. He sees the heart that it all comes from, and it is moldy and poisonous. And he will be right to judge you. So again, I say, what are we to do? The answer is not to ask God to change the standard, because he won't. The answer is not for God to change himself and somehow give us a pass, because that would be less than justice. Do we sometimes, in our heart of hearts, kind of halfway wish to believe that we might get a lenient judge who would bend the rules and maybe find the loophole for us? That's not the answer. It's not going to happen that way. No, instead of a lenient judge, you need a new heart. You need to cry for mercy. Turn from sin and come to Jesus to believe in him as the one who saves you from your sins. Submit to him as Lord who rules over you. He is Savior. He is Lord. He is King. And if you do, he will forgive your sin. He will cleanse you from your wickedness. There's a debt to be paid for our sin. And Jesus paid it on the cross. There is filth to be cleaned. And he cleans it with his cleansing blood. There is shame to be covered, and he covers it with his righteousness on our behalf. God says in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. The way you get a new heart is by coming to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You say, well, I've done that. How am I supposed to deal with God's judgment? Well, believe this, brother, sister. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy, Paul writes to Titus, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christian, you and I will give account to God for our lives, but not as judgment for sin. If you're in Christ, your sin is judged in Christ, and you will never face it again. It has been buried and cast away from you. Praise the Lord for that. Because we couldn't stand before this kind of judgment. No one will. Those who must will fall and will be condemned eternally in hell for it. Since what you say is consistent with who you are, the only fix or a filthy mouth, is a new heart. Your words identify your heart. What kind of heart do you have? Do you believe or know? Your words vent your heart. What is coming out of your mouth? Are you being honest with yourself about that? That's really what's in your heart. 
your heart identifies you before God, either as good or evil. That's it. And your words expose your true nature. And that's the reason God will use words as evidence, because it's true evidence. It's accurate to who you are. The Puritan pastor and hymn writer, John Newton, he was born in 1725. He had a godly mother who taught him to pray. But she died when he was seven. And he, was, he went to sea with his father as a young man. He was a blasphemer of God. He was an immoral man. He was a ship captain, eventually a slave trader. He lived a foul and profane life. But in 1748, something changed in his life. While he was on the ocean, his ship was caught in a terrible storm. And as the boat was plunging down wave after wave, no one expected them to come up on the next wave. The, the ship is taking on water. And as Newton went to man one of the pumps on the ship, he, he said to the captain, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy upon us. One author writes this about that from his own words, as John Newton was reflecting on this. His own words startled him. Mercy. He said to himself in astonishment, mercy, mercy. What mercy can there be for me? He said. This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in many years. About six in the morning, this author writes, the hold was free from water. And then came a gleam of hope. John Newton writes, I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to be reconciled to God and call him father. My cry for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. In the gospel, writes John Newton, I saw at least a possibility or a peradventure of hope. But on every other side, I was surrounded with thick, with black, unfathomable despair. And this author writes, on the possibility of hope, Newton staked everything. He sought mercy, and he found it. So if you have a black heart, black as black can be, and you know it before the Lord, cry for mercy. God gives mercy. He is a God of mercy. And if God is showing you today that you have a heart of unbelief, then I urge you to call on the name of the Lord to be saved because the only fix for that mouth is a new heart, a heart that only God can give. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy towards sinners. We would all be undone. We've looked at one way that we can sin and just our mouths is enough to condemn us for eternity. These Pharisees were on the brink of no return. Lord, there may be some here who have heard much truth and continue to resist. I pray that you would humble them. Use your word like a fire and like a hammer to break down pride, to expose sin so that the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ may come in. Lord, we all need your mercy. We all need your help. Any believer here knows that we all stumble in many ways in our, in our speech 
and we need your grace as well so that the new heart that you've given us really is changed to be like Jesus Christ so that our mouths would pour out blessing on one another. Help us to do that even today. You've called us to use our tongues to edify one another. Help us to do it for your honor and your glory. Thank you for the gospel and for making us new in Christ Jesus. We celebrate that today. We rejoice in the mercy that you've shown us through Christ. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen.